Let's pray. Put your hand on your head. Just here, somewhere. Father, we just ask that you would unblock our minds so that it doesn't get in the way of our hearts receiving truth. In your name, amen. The issue is never with our hearts, it's actually with our heads. When your heart hears truth, then it actually um, it embraces it. When your mind hears something that is contradictory to what we believe to be true, um, then that can actually be an issue for us. I was a 17-year-old high school senior, fresh into a brand new experience of faith. I was also full of zeal for evangelism, but clueless about how to evangelize, other than just telling my friends about what I was so passionate about, which was God, Jesus, the Bible, salvation, and the rapture. My church had an evangelism program. I'd attended all the sessions for Evangelism Explosion, and was now paired with a leading deacon in our Baptist church for our first night of calling on people so we could present the gospel to them. The deacon and I knocked on the first door. Behind this door was a man whose name we had been given because he had visited our church and innocently filled out a visitor's card. The man came to the door and greeted us, but it was obvious from traces of food on his face and the napkin in his hand that he and his family were eating dinner and watching TV. The deacon wasn't about to be deterred by such worldly issues when this man's eternity was at stake. The deacon was clever enough to work his way into the home, and there we sat for the next hour or so as the family finished dinner, cleaned the table, did the dishes, and then retired to the other rooms, leaving the dad with us. My job as a nervous newbie was to pray and keep my mouth shut unless I had something really important to say. I did pray, and I actually didn't have anything to say. As the hour wore on, two things became apparent. First, the man wasn't at all interested in getting saved. And second, the deacon was surely convinced that the man was interested, even if he had to apply every ounce of persuasion that he had mastered. The deacon won. The man somehow made a decision for Christ. We prayed with him, and then we returned to the church where everyone had gathered. When we gave our report of our, of our salvation, everyone said, praise God. Yes, we had achieved our goal, but deep inside, I was absolutely convinced that the man had not made a decision for Christ. That man too had achieved his goal in getting us out of his house. I never saw the man at our church again, but I did, I did recognize his face one time in our community in the streets. I wanted to apologize to him for our gospel presentation, but I had no idea how one did such a thing about what I believed to be truth. There's an important question we need to answer. I'm hoping this is going to work. Um, and then we'll get into it. Is this question here. And it's probably the most simplest question to ask a church, to ask Christians. And I reckon that if you all looked at that question, what is the gospel, I reckon you would all be able to jump at the response quite quickly. 
The response would generally be this. If I was to ask you what is the gospel in one sentence, you would go, we are sinners and Jesus came and died for our sin. However, that is actually not the gospel. Now, throughout this three-week series, and the reason why it's three weeks is because this is such a a, a deep topic. Um, I'm going to break it down. I'm not going to come to a completion. I'm not going to give any absolutes in the first or second or even third uh, week. What I'm going to do is I'm going to present to you what I believe to be truth from what we see in Scripture, and you have to come to the conclusion whether you believe that to be true or not. I do want to make a statement. I know that the statement will shock some of you, and I know that it will create um, maybe some distaste in some people's mouths, um, but it is this, that Jesus dying for your sin is not the gospel. When I was a young Christian, that story that I read was um, the account of a man by the name of Scott McNaught. Um, I'm going to tell you my little testimony. When I first got saved, I was saved uh, in 2001, and I went to a church where all my friends were going to, and it was a um, part of a denomination called New Covenant Ministries International. It was a, an outstanding community. It grew incredibly quickly in, in an area that um, people had deemed the graveyard of churches, which is a, a little suburb called The Bluff. Uh, it's a little surfing sort of coastal community, um, about 52,000 people um, on the east coast of South Africa, just outside of the city of Durban, which has got 5 million people. This little church had been planted there with about 20 people, and within the first year, there were over 150. So it's just a radical growth. Um, I got saved in the early days of that church, probably within the first six months, and um, I did an evangelism course. As you do, you know, you do an evangelism course because you want to get people saved. And so the evangelism course taught me a couple things. Number one, mankind were full, were full of sin. And the method on how to get them there was to tell them they were full of sin. And when they decided to reject that by stating that I'm not a bad person at all, I would learn to go through the Ten Commandments in order to show them that they actually were failing and they did need salvation. That's generally how we would understand evangelism courses. Now, the little church that I was part of and that denomination that I was part of, I want to say that it was a great place to be. Like, I learned the first four four years of my life as a Christian. It was an amazing time for me. They taught me so many things on on what to do, but also so many things on what not to do. Um, I have nothing bad to say about that past. However, there was some things in there which, as I grew as 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 a Christian, as I grew in my relationship with God, I began to realize there was missing. Most of evangelism today is obsessed with getting someone to make a decision. However, the apostles were obsessed with making disciples. This whole series I'm going to do is around the issue of us in Western Christianity and Eastern Christianity and Third World nations, unfortunately, where we have taken the, what we call the gospel and we've created a gospel of sin management. So for us, as you've heard me say before in the past, the story starts at Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sinned and the fall of man came 
And since that day, God has been on a rescue mission to rescue us, getting to the point where eventually Jesus comes and died for your sins. And that's pretty much what the gospel has been for us. That's why, um, that's where we've presented it. That's where the presentation ends. And so what happens is we end up camping around one place as Christians. And that place is the cross. Now, I never want to diminish the cross. I watched, um, I think it was a week ago or two weeks ago with Ben and Jess and, and, um, Naomi and Rio. We watched The Passion again. I've seen it a few times. Ben was his first time he had seen it. I was excited to show it to him. And you look at the gruesome event that took place. So you never diminish what Jesus himself allowed himself to go through on our behalf. However, that's not the gospel. And that's quite shocking for some to hear. It was shocking when I first realized that. Um, and it was quite offensive. And some of you might even be offended at the fact that I'm saying that. I hope that throughout this teaching series you'll begin to realize that what I'm saying is biblical truth. Not my idea. Not my opinion. I don't ever want to preach my opinion. Evangelism that focuses, and, and, and to, but for those of you who have been used to me preaching, uh, I'm pretty fluid in the way I preach, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm up and down at times, and I go down rabbit trails, and that's my style of preaching. However, in this case, you're gonna, you, I'm going to reference my notes quite a bit. The reason being is that it, it's so easy to get off track on such a, a deep topic. And I'm mainly using my notes to guide myself. <laughs> Otherwise, I will end up on rabbit trails, and we actually don't end up going anywhere. And I really need over three weeks to get to to a point. Okay, so I will reference my notes for myself. Evangelism that focuses on a decision, or getting people to make a decision, actually short circuits and even aborts the design of the gospel. I'll say that again because it's shocking. Evangelism that focuses on getting people to make a decision actually short circuits the design of the gospel. While evangelism that aims at making disciples actually slows down to offer the full gospel. That statement's from Scott McKnight. I can guarantee that most all of you, when you heard the gospel, was presented to you about Jesus dying for your sins. I can guarantee that pretty much 95 to 99% of us, that was the gospel that we got involved in. The gospel of Jesus wants more from us than just one decision. In actual fact, I'm very captivated by Jesus and and, and the way he presents himself to people and the way he presents truth to people and then he walks away leaving that decision or leaving what he has just said with an individual. Now, now, if we were, if Jesus was to use the tactics that we use in Western society, he would hang around that individual after making a statement, trying to convince that person to believe what he is saying is true and getting them to make a decision for him. But Jesus never does that. He drops the truth and then he walks away. Because Jesus is not interested in getting that person to make a decision. Therefore, he's not spending time convincing that person. He presents a truth and he moves. It's then up to that person to make a decision and then from a decision to begin to follow into becoming a disciple.
The gospel of Jesus wants more from us than a single decision to get our sins wiped away so we can be safe and secure until he comes and takes us to heaven. Too many Christians, as Rob Rufus would say, get saved, in inverted commas, and then they sit on the rapture bench waiting for that bus to come and pick them up. In Western society today, the correlation between making a decision and becoming a disciple is not very high. Focusing at youth events, retreats, programs, outreaches on persuading people to make a decision actually disarms the gospel, it distorts numbers, and it diminishes the significance of discipleship. Um, many people that I know personally, including myself, can confess that there was an event that they went to when an atmosphere was created through music, through lighting, um, and, and other means, where in that event they ended up making some sort of decision to a message that was presented to them about them not going to heaven, not meeting the mark with God, and them having just enough fear to want to not go to hell, but not enough motivation for them to actually continue a life that follows after Jesus on a daily basis. Many of those people who said that they made some form of decision by putting up their hands and repeating a prayer after a man on a stage with a microphone never went back to church after the first three months. Now I know I was born again on the first day that I got saved because the change from the, the Saturday to the Monday was radical. On the Saturday night I was out clubbing, doing my drugs, I was, I was, I was, I was on ecstasy and, and cocaine. The next day I went to church, um, I slept in the morning, went to church on Sunday night, got born again that night, woke up the next morning, never touched it ever again. Like it was instantaneous. For me, that was a radical decision. But I stood in that meeting shaking. There was no goosebumps. I stood in that meeting shaking under the incredible conviction of my distance from God, who I did not know. Yet at the same time, I felt an increased love that I had never experienced in my life prior. And I said this, I don't know who you are. I remember that night so clearly. I said, I don't know who you are. But if you reveal yourself to me, I will follow you for the rest of my life. And that's exactly what God did. And it's been, I think, 14 years since that day. However, many of my friends who made the same commitment to at, at, at similar events that we had created over those four years, to this day are not in any way serving Jesus, do they in any way confess Jesus, and in any way are they plugged into any local community called the church at all and have not been so for 13 to 14 and a half, so 13 to 13 and a half years. Yet they were at those events. Something is wrong. That's just my experience, let alone the more than 75% of Australians that say 
they believe in Jesus, yet at the same time have never served him nor plugged into anything such as a local church. Something is wrong. Amen? Do you agree or disagree with that? We have to learn, we have to have to learn to do evangelism that moves away from getting people to make a decision and do evangelism in a way that creates disciples. That is the whole premise of understanding the gospel. It is the whole premise. If we don't understand the gospel, we what are we presenting to people? Besides a message of sin management, which we will learn through this series, we call it the... Um, the, the, the plan of salvation or the message of salvation. So we need to go through a couple items where we will, we will go through them to start at, at the beginning and understand um, where it all began and how it all ties in. It's like going to a golf course and, and, um, and not taking the map that shows you where the holes are. But when, you, when you play on a golf course, golf courses aren't just a piece of land where they decide to make holes in different locations. They are specifically designed by, by designers of golf courses. These guys specialize in it. And the golf course actually flows in a certain pattern. It's, it's, it, it doesn't, if you start on hole five, and, and then you, and then you go from hole five to hole four, then from hole four to hole seven, because golf courses run in strange ways. So you, it's easy to get lost if there's no numbering system. The goal, it actually won't make sense what you're playing on. You actually begin to become confused about what this course is, where this course is going. And so the same thing with the gospel. We, we have to start at point number one, or hole number one, and then work our way towards hole 18, correct? In order to understand it. Now, I've got a few slides, and, and um, I forgot to put in my book where that slide goes. So I'll just flick in, and hopefully we get somewhere. I'm, I'm trusting that I'll remember as we go. Okay. I believe we wandered from the pages of the Bible into what we have called, what we call the, the message of salvation. And there's two types of, um, let's see if this works. There's two types of cultures that are formed. The first culture is salvation culture, where our emphasis is personal sin management. It's focused on measuring a person's witness to an experience of personal salvation. It also tends to ask the question of who's in and who's out. Are you in? Do you know Jesus? Are you in the family of God? Or are you out? And that's where this, that's where that, that culture tends to end its questions. Um, that's what my concern was as young guys, making sure that all my friends and family were in. But it became frustrating for a young man who had truly been saved into a discipleship culture, um, to, to try, it became frustrating when my friends who were getting saved weren't going on that journey with me. They were, they were, they simply made a decision that, and that was enough for them. I believe the word gospel has been hijacked by what we believe about personal salvation. It really has. And so oftentimes the gospel has been about you. It really has. But I'm going to burst that little bubble for you. Unfortunately, the gospel is actually not about you. Just, we're going to have to learn to deal with that. You, you are not the good news. Gospel means good news. And you, you are not it. <laughs> you know what I mean? You are incorporated into it. But we are not the good news. The gospel itself has actually been reshaped 
to facilitate making decisions. The result of this is that the word gospel no longer means in our society today what it originally meant in the, in the days of Jesus and in, and the, in the early church when the apostles went around. Now, <laughs> it, it, this is hard for evangelists to, to hear because their whole, their whole uh, premise, their whole gift uh, set is around going out and getting people saved. That's just what they focus on. You know, that's where we get the word evangelism from. The word evangelism comes from the word gospel. Evangelon is the word evangelon, and that actually that is that means good news. Gospel means good news. The, the, Jesus didn't didn't invent that word, and neither did the early apostles. The word gospel actually was a Roman word, and it actually came from uh, any form of good news. Like if I was going to announce a wedding, I would be gospeling. I would go out and share the gospel of the fact that this couple will be getting married in such and such a time, and everyone would celebrate and get excited. And so Jesus simply uses that same word of gospel, the good news. Well, not even Jesus, but the, um, the apostles started to use that same word because it was common language. So we've created this culture of salvation. It's primarily focused on getting people to become the decider. Salvation culture, as I read here, are, uh, a salvation culture and a, and a gospel culture are actually not the same thing. They, they're two different things. However, I want to say to you that a gospel culture does actually incorporate salvation. It has to incorporate salvation. That is part of it. However, that is not the be-all, end-all. You getting saved wasn't the whole plan. The whole plan started in Genesis chapter 1. That's where we open our Bible and we start to read from the beginning. And it says there, in the beginning, God. And then it starts to lay out what God did. And he created these two people, Adam and Eve who entered into the garden, and that's where the story begins. It begins with God, and the story ends with God. If you read in Genesis, it end, sorry, in, in, in Revelation, it ends with God. Correct? When we build around a salvation culture, we almost always struggle, we will always struggle to move the decided into becoming the disciple. Because we have recreated a culture which is obsessed on entirely on getting people to make a decision. So we struggle. I don't know if I've been to many, many churches and, 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 and it irks me where we constantly sing about bringing people to the cross, about us remaining around the cross, about us coming back to around the cross. And, and, and something is wrong where, where we're constantly having people who have once upon a time, maybe, you know, a year ago, six months ago, five years ago, 15 years ago, const constantly making a recommitment to Jesus. I, I want to I say this. I've never in the scriptures ever seen a presentation of the message where they ask somebody if you want to recommit. But in many churches today, a lot of it, if no one puts up their hand to become a first-time believer, if you've never known Jesus, you've never accepted him, and, and the horrific line of inviting him into your heart. That line for me just short circuits everything about what the gospel is. Do you, we want you to invite Jesus into your heart. No, you don't invite him into your heart. You submit your life absolutely to the King of glory. So inviting him into your heart means come and be a part of my life where I get to govern you, Jesus, and bring you in and out where I feel like I want you to be. That is the gospel of sin management. That is just what a salvation culture does. And when nobody puts their hand up in that church, guess what happens? The next thing we go after is if you've 
at one point made some commitment to Jesus, but you haven't been properly following him, we want to ask you if you want to make a recommitment tonight. And generally you'll get five or six or seven hands going up in a church of about 500. I never ever see that. Jesus says once, come and follow me. And he follows them. And if people turn around and walk away, Jesus never goes after them. He never goes to buff them up. He never goes to try and grab them. He goes after the one sheep that is lost, yes. Yes, he does. He searches for the coin, yes. Isn't that interesting? If you look at that scripture, he goes after the sheep that is lost, and he goes and searches for the coin that has been lost. But the son, because it's in, remember when you read it in, in consecutive, it's the, it's the lost sheep, then the next phase that Jesus goes into in his story is the coin that is hidden away, or the woman's lost the coin and she finds it. Then the next one is the story of the prodigal son. That is in succession on purpose. Number one, the lost sheep he goes after. Number two, the coin that has been lost, the valuable coin he goes after. But number three, the son that walks away, he does not go after. The father waits and allows the son to come back. The salvation culture struggles, is struggling, and will continue to struggle to get the decider to become disciples. We have to create a gospel culture. Evangelists that go out in the streets, or door knocking, or however you want to do it, go to events. I've, I've, I've spoken, I've got some of them that I know quite well, and, and the, the thing that, that I challenge them on every single time is where are the people that you say put up their hands to accept Jesus on that night because you are giving me numbers of 50 people that night, 100 people that night, or however many they come up with. Where are those individual people right now? It's been three to four to five months. It's been one week, two weeks even. Where are they? I'm not sure. I don't know. Where did you send them? What did you do with them once they put their hand up and made this, re re repeated the prayer after you? Because that's what happens. You know, who wants to give their life to Jesus? They give some story. It, the story can either be about the fact that you're a filthy sinner, which is one side, or the other one is the message all about God's love and His grace towards you. So one of those two messages are going to be presented at an event, depending on what your um, sort of denominational background would be. However, you get to the point where somebody says, I do, I do, and then you tell them, repeat after me. And five or six or seven or fifty or a hundred people put, put their hand on their heart and they, and, they, and they repeat after that evangelism. And he stays on with them and they talk and everyone's happy. The evangelist moves on to the next location and where are all those people? That is not what I see in the scriptures, how Jesus does it, and it's not how I see the apostles doing it. And if I had 150 people that gave, that gave their life, or 100, or let me just even bring it right down. Let's be realistic. If I had 20 people that gave their lives to Jesus when I went to schoolies and, and, they, and they committed their life to Jesus at, at Surface Paradise, 20 people would be a great number to start a church with. The very thing that you need to do is invite those people straight back to your house and spend quality time with them, meet them even in that same park the next week, and begin to build a local community where those people who have made some form of decision can actually learn about what they made a decision towards and how to get on a journey towards walking with this amazing king called Jesus and this heavenly father who has made a way for them. But that doesn't happen. So we tend to distort numbers. We saw 150 people say it. Fantastic. I'm looking for 150 disciples to follow Jesus. And they can't be found anywhere. And so something has gone wrong in our understanding of the gospel.
Because when it is the gospel that is created, where, where it is a, sorry, a salvation culture, the numbers of people putting their hands up is satisfying enough. But it's not satisfying. The only number that Jesus is counting are disciples. 3,000 people walked away from him. He never went after them. He actually gave them a word challenging enough to create an issue in their minds so that they could either follow him or walk away from him. And he never went after them, chasing them. He let them go on the way they wanted to go. Because his concern was not their comfort. His concern was his kingdom. So, a gospel culture focuses on creating disciples, creating image bearers of the nature of Jesus, and taking people beyond the cross. Now, now let me say this. When I, it's, it's impossible for me to diminish the work of the cross, because the work of the cross is so powerful. However, it, it is an issue if we camp around the cross. We were never called to camp around the cross. The, the, the cross, a place of pain and scorn and punishment, became, became a symbol of victory for us as Christians. However, Jesus isn't on the cross. He actually isn't there anymore. So, so, so while we camp around it as Christians, I don't understand. I do understand the fact that we need to bring people who do not know, know him, people who have not accepted who he is and what he did. Remember, when we present the gospel, it's not about what Jesus did. It's about who Jesus is and what he did. Please remember that. I want to I reiterate that again. When we present the gospel, it's not about what Jesus did. We present the gospel about who Jesus is and what he did. And who he still is. Remember, he came, he did die, but remember, he actually did rise again. He is still alive. He's not on the cross. And so we've got to bring people to the event of the cross. And then we've got to move people beyond the event of the cross into a lifestyle of walking like Jesus did. Because there is a purpose for people walking like Jesus did. And we'll get around to that in the weeks to come. Next one. So we're going to look at three, four major categories. I think this might, uh, yeah, okay, four major categories. The story of the Bible, which will incorporate the story of Israel. That is a key theme. Then we've got to understand the story of Jesus. And then we're going to look at the plan of salvation. And then we're going to look at the method of persuasion. Now those three items there, those three headings, Brad didn't come up with them on his own. I'm not that clever. But a, a guy by the name of Scott McKnight came up with those three headings. And, and a lot of what I've learned from him and people like N.T. Wright and Dallas Willard over a number of books, as well as myself studying the scriptures to see what these men are saying, has influenced this message in me. I've preached this message over this this series took me eight months at Crossing Point. That's how big it is, because it, it spills out into so many different things as you go through it. It goes into very, very um, deep areas as you move through it. And, and, and you know, as I, as I preach over you know, the next few years, I will, I will bring some of that into my, into my sermons, um, because I want to be able to build upon this. As we, as we go by. So we're going to look at those three stories. Let me just tell you this. The gospel does not make sense. Sorry, the story of Jesus does not make sense if we don't understand the story of the Bible and, the, and, the, and understand the story of Israel. It won't, won't make sense to you. The plan of salvation cannot make sense without understanding the story of Jesus. And then the method of persuasion is how we get people to understand this decision-making process. What is our method of persuading people of what this gospel is? When I mean persuasion, I don't mean to try and con people. 
It's not our job to get people saved, just so you know that. It's our job to make disciples. Jesus said, go out and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that when you put them in the water and they go under, you say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The word baptize means to completely submerge them into and when you, and, and that, so that they are completely changed. It doesn't mean that when you go, I, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit into the water, you come out and everyone claps, yay! To baptize somebody in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is to submerge them into the nature of the Father, into the nature of Jesus, the Son, and into the nature of the Holy Spirit. It's not to do with the water thing. It doesn't actually reference that in that statement. But Jesus didn't call us to get people saved. He called us to make disciples. In actual fact, there's only one person who can save them, and that's him. So your gospel, when you present it, make sure that it's not to convince people to get saved. It's to convince people of the king. So I just want to go through part one very quickly now, which is the story of the um, of Israel in the Bible. If you can give me till about ten past quarter past, would that be all right? And um, since I, I was, yeah, I said to Ben, I need I'll need about forty five minutes per per um, per meeting. So I'm hoping to be finished by then. If not, we'll cut it short and keep going. But the story of the Bible. Now I don't know if I've got another slide. Did I make that? No, I didn't. Anyway, I'll leave it up there. Can you put that one? Can you manually put that back? Or is it up to me? No, it's done. Don't worry about it. Okay. So the story of the Bible, slash the story of Israel, starts with the creation of God, as I said before, placing divine image bearers. That's you and me. Adam and Eve. Divine image bearers. In the garden, which was a temple, the garden temple, to represent God or represent God. To govern for God. To relate to God. To relate to each other. And to relate to the world in a redemptive manner. That's why they were put there. In this garden. Ultimately to govern. This was obviously radically distorted through the fall, through man making a decision um, based on unbelief. If you, did God really say, you know, that you are you know, in his image? Surely you will not die. If you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. You will know good from evil. And there's a whole story around that which I don't want to get into now. They were already like God because he made them in his image and likeness. So straight away, the moment that they gave in to Satan telling them that, you know, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. They should have already said to him, no, but we are already, we are already like God. We are created in his image and his likeness. So their first act was unbelief. They did not believe what God had told them. Now, in the Greek, if you read in Hebrews, you'll see it. The word unbelief or disbelief and disobedience are the same word. When they, so when it's, when they disobeyed God, they actually disbelieved God. And sin entered. The nature of sin entered. And so sin itself is actually tied directly to unbelief. It's not what you do. What you do wrong in your daily life through stinking thinking is not sin. The sin is the unbelief in, in our heart. 
Now, if you're a born-again Christian, if you believe in who God is and who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and that he did rise again, and that he is seated in the, on the throne, and that he will come again, which is our declaration of faith, you are a born-again son or daughter of God. That nature of unbelief in your heart no longer exists. Scripture is clear on that. He removed unbelief. He removed sin. It's not there. You, you cannot have a nature of sin and, and be a son or daughter of God. You can't. You can continue to do acts of the flesh because your mind is still being renewed. And your mind is renewed the more and more you listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's so clear in Scripture. If you read the texts, you, it cannot become any... You, you cannot get it wrong. You, the only way you get it wrong is when somebody teaches you incorrectly. But if you read for yourself, you will see it is so evident. Okay? So that was distorted. When we, we, we then see that God chooses one person, Abraham. And then through Abraham, he chooses a people, Israel. I'm just, I'm, I'm just, this is, I'm doing this in a nutshell because it's not really what we're going to be, I, I don't have enough time to, to break all this down. That's, that's really the, the, the problem. So, just hear what I'm, catch it, you all know the story anyway. So he create, he, 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 he chooses a person named Abraham. Then through Abraham, he chooses a people, one nation, which is actually at that time Israel. And then later on through the seed, who is Jesus, of Abraham, he chooses the church. All of us were called to be God's priests. And to rule in this world on his behalf. That's really it. That's the story. That's the general story. What Adam was to do in the garden, which was to govern this world redemptively on God's behalf, it is now the mission that God gave to Israel through Abraham, who was the father of Israel. And, and that, that is then passed down because like Adam, Israel also failed. They, 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 they could not do it. And so God through Jesus brings us, the church, into that story. The Gentiles get brought into that story, where we are now to rule as both kings and priests. That's clear in Scripture. We rule with God, under God, on God's behalf, redemptively as kings and priests. Israel's kings failed. Israel failed. And so then Jesus comes into the story, the story of Jesus, which we'll talk about next week. So, so God then sends his son. Right? In doing that, he redeems mankind from their sin, their, 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 their um, unbelief, their nature of sin. Um, and, he, and he brings us back into, sorry, and he, and he redeems us from evil. And then he brings us back into the original state that God had created in the garden, which was, except now that the garden is not a physical slash spiritual place. My belief is that the garden, because if you, if you read the, the original text, it actually says, it's not called the garden of Eden. It's called the garden in Eden. So the garden, Eden means paradise. So we go, oh, the garden of Eden. No, the scripture, if you look at it properly, says the garden in Eden, which means there was a garden that was in paradise. My belief, because in that garden was the tree of life. My belief, this is Brad's personal belief, and I know there's many others that believe the same thing, is that the garden, sorry, the garden is, was a spiritual place. It was a, a spiritual dimension where God walked with Adam and Eve in that garden. And Adam and Eve could eat from every tree except the one tree. Was the tree of life there? Yes. So could they eat from that tree of life? Yes. The tree of life is Jesus. We know that. He, it's the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Okay? The garden is now our heart. 
That's why we've got to tend to our heart. We've got to tend to the garden, which is what Adam and Eve's job was. Tend to the garden. Make sure that it's good. It's looked after. And then from there, you go out into all the world and govern on God's behalf. Bringing in a, in a redemptive manner. Not in a, not in a judgmental manner. Not, not, in a, not in a destructive manner, but in a redemptive manner. You getting it? Am I going too fast, Joe, or is it making sense? Good. It, it, when you actually look at it, it's, it's, although it's profound, it's quite simplistic, which is the way God designed the gospel to be. The gospel is not difficult to understand. The gospel is very simplistic, but at the same time, it's very profound. There is, there is incredible depth to it. So, so we must never simplify the gospel. I heard guys go that. Oh, the gospel's simple. Jesus came and died for our sins. Now, hang on a minute. That's, that's part of it. But the gospel is so much more deeper than just that surface statement. And I'm hoping to bring some of that out. How are you going to the river? Yes. You can leave the next one. As long as he doesn't try and grab the microphone. So, what we'll get to learn is since... So since it, 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 remember, we're in the story of Israel, story of the Bible. So... Adam and Eve failed. Abraham and Israel through him with their kings failed. So God then sends his son Jesus, who, who comes into the world and, and establishes what it looks like to walk in relationship with the Father as a son, the way Adam and Eve were supposed to. He then gives of his life, you know, so that you and me and all of mankind can have that issue of sin taken care of. He then comes back to life again, and that coming back to life again is the key element in the story of Jesus, in the story of the Bible. He comes back to life, no longer on the cross, and then he raises, he gets raised into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, therefore making him the Messiah, who was promised and who was waited for. Without the Messiah, without Jesus, Jesus could die for your sin, but if he did not rise back to life, you would not be justified. You would not be justified. And, and, and more than that, he would have not been the Messiah, which means we would now be waiting for another to come. The fact that he was raised back to life meant that he had defeated death, and then when he was raised into heaven, okay, and ascended, sorry, into heaven, and seated at the right hand of the Father, he became the ruling king for eternity. That there is where the story of Israel then comes to its complete, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Not fulfillment in a sense, but um, it's like a crescendo. Yeah, that's exactly right. It comes to a crescendo. They were waiting for this Messiah. Their whole life, the whole of their existence, they were waiting for this Messiah King who would rule and govern and bring Israel back into that place that they were supposed to be with Abraham. Notice that when God does, what, sorry, notice that what God does in sending the Son is to establish Jesus as the Messiah, which means anointed king. And then through that, God established in Jesus the kingdom of God. Jesus being raised to laugh and seated at the right hand of God the Father means that he is the ruling, he is the ruling king. We need to note that the idea of a king and kingdom connects directly to the original plan of God in Genesis. Do you understand that? It connects you directly to that. Because Adam and Eve were called to rule. 
Then kings came in to rule. Then they failed. Then Jesus comes to rule but does not fail. And that connects us right back to the original story. Bang. We to rule. He then chooses the church to be those who govern on his behalf the way that God originally chose Adam and Eve, mankind, to govern on his behalf. Adam and Eve, hold on, I think I've gone a little bit ahead, which is fine, it's not, not the end of the world. So God, Jesus now commissions the church. Then finally, this story has an aim. The story of the Bible has an aim. The consummation of this present evil age. Consummation is when Jesus returns again, then this present age that we live in now will be completely wrapped up, finished, and a new age of eternity will begin where we live on a new earth and a new heaven is created. That's the consummation. This is ultimately the Bible story. This is what it is in a nutshell. Yet there's so much depth to it. So we don't understand Jesus unless we understand the story. And we're not going to understand salvation if we don't understand the story. And we're not going to understand what we are persuading people towards through our methods of persuasion unless we understand this story. Now for most of us, if I said to you, where would you place the gospel in this four categories? Let's go back quickly. Uh, forward, I think. Yep. Where would you place the, where would you place the gospel? I reckon most of us would place it there from what we've known in the past. The plan of salvation. Jesus came and died for you. That's pretty much where we'd place the gospel. However, that is not the place it goes in, but it fits beautifully into the gospel story. So just so you know, as I mentioned, the gospel is not that Jesus... And actually, let me just say this before I carry on. If you go look at Stephen, just what I've said now about the story of Israel and the plan of the Bible, if you go look at Stephen when he is standing before the Sanhedrin, just before he dies in the book of Acts, when he's presenting to them a message. What I've just said to you now about that, about Abraham being chosen, then Israel, and then through that Jesus, that's exactly what Stephen presents to them. That is his exact message. As clear as daylight, you cannot miss it. He presents that message to them, and through that he gets put to death. Because he accuses them, quite vehemently of, <laughs> of um, persecuting the, 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 the author of life, you know. Uh, but that is the presentation that Stephen gives to the Jewish community to show them that this journey through Jesus, this, what you have been waiting for so long has now been fulfilled. And we can now enter into the next phase of it, which was actually the first phase of it, and the parenthesis in between is where we all missed the mark a hundred times over with all your kings and all your leaders not listening to the prophets. And then, all, So we've literally just gone now right back to the beginning. And our journey starts here again. It starts with tending to the garden and then governing the earth. But we keep bringing people back to the cross. How did you do this week? Have you lied this week? Have you gone out drinking too much? Have you been watching pornographic material on the computer? Have you been swearing at the workplace? Have you this, that, that? Well, do you know what? You need to come back to the cross. You need to ask God to forgive you. Because He loves you. And He has a plan and a purpose for you. And when you like that, he don't, that plan and purpose can't be fulfilled. So if that's you, why don't you stand up and walk to the front and we're going to ask God to forgive us. If you need to recommit your life to Jesus today because last week when you recommitted it, this week you stepped out of line a few times. So there's another opportunity because He is a God of a thousand chances. 
Where, where, did we, where did that ever come in? I don't ever see that in the scriptures. I never see it anywhere in the documentation that we've been given from above, which we call our Bible, that we are Bible-believing Christians, yet use the most unbiblical methods in how we present this amazing good news about who he is and what he's done and how we become a part of that story. And so tomorrow, uh, sorry, tomorrow I wish I could come back tomorrow, but I'll be at work earning money. <laughs> um, I want to be able to come back next week, and we're going to continue with the next two, which is the story of Jesus and the plan of salvation as one. And then the third week we'll go into the, the method of persuasion and have a look through the book of Acts. I'm going to read you, so bring your Bibles in the third week. I'm going to read you a lot of scripture where the apostles, through the book of Acts, present the gospel. Where they present a message of good news. And we're going to have a look and see just what they were presenting when they were speaking about it. And I think that our eyes are going to be opened. Um, and hopefully encourage all of you that when you actually, for number one, to enter into a gospel-slash-discipleship lifestyle and how you present that to the people around you, is going to, I'm hoping and trusting is going to change the way we as a church do it. That would probably be another, another sermon of Tending the Garden. That's, there's a lot to that as well, you know what I mean? Um, this one is really mainly going to be around this. what is this gospel that we're presenting and what is this gospel that we ourselves have believed in, okay? So um, enjoy your week. Let this stir in you. Let, let it offend you. It is. It's good to be offended at times, you know what I'm saying, in a healthy way. Because it, it, whenever I'm shaken by truth, whenever I hear something and it, shake, it shakes me, I know for a fact that there's something in me that needs to change. Because if somebody presents something that is not truth, I'm never convinced. I'm very stable in who I am about the truth that I believe in. But when I start to get a bit edgy and shaky, then I know that God's trying to do something in me. And so pay attention and, and listen to what's actually happening. Amen? So bless you guys. Enjoy your week, and I'll speak to you uh, next week. Guys, I, I just want to quickly say, that was fantastic. I just want to quickly say, I want to ask you to honor the three weeks that Brad has to explain this. If you are offended, then that's okay, but allow Brad the time to close what he's opened here this, this morning. He opened a lot of things, so I just want to ask you to give him the time, the three weeks, to actually dig in and close some of the things he has opened. Also, Dave's is going to be at the back taking registrations if you haven't registered for family camp. Chat with him if you've got any questions in regards to that. And if you've got your questions, come chuck them on the front. Thank you. The Billy's on. Love ya, and we'll chat soon.